Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update on this uh, Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. The uh, We'll talk about the APAC uh, get-together in a minute. Uh, are, are you... Um, are you appreciating the media's uh, declaration of a farewell tour for Prime Minister Netanyahu? <laughs> it seems it seems like this visit to the U.S., acknowledged by the New York Times and others, uh, is their big farewell. This is his chance to say goodbye to the political world. And I, I thought this may just be a bit premature. What did you think? Well, certainly premature. And anybody who counts out Netanyahu or tried to do it in the past, I think, uh, pay the price for it, and uh, uh, although one could say that it's not an irrational conclusion to say that the, the situation is different now and that he is under tremendous pressure, though he he is able, it seems, to compartmentalize his his problems and not to, to manifest it. Certainly, didn't in Washington and um, in his visit, brief visit in New York. So uh, and focused on on the substance, whether it's the Saudi nuclear program or the Iranians in Syria or the other issues that that he raised uh, during his visit. So the the political situation is certainly serious, and he was questioned right before he left uh, last Friday. Uh, but this is, uh, I think, it's premature to draw conclusions. It's interesting because I, I don't know. If during his entire tenure he's ever enjoyed more of symbolic strength than when he's sitting in the White House next to President Trump and essentially enjoying, uh, you know, a love fest from the Washington establishment, it seems, White House, Congress, etc., you know, toward him. And it's not a love fest because they really think he's retiring, as the New York Times thinks. It's a love fest because it seems everyone's on the same page at this point politically in terms of Israel's role in the Middle East. Well, that's largely true, and and if you notice that uh, the more he gets investigated, the more his numbers go up, <laughs> and the and the each new subsequent, you know, several thousand uh, investigation, you know, you had the one thousand, two thousand, five thousand, eight and a half thousand, uh, not to make light of them. I mean, they, some of these things are involve serious charges against people, but unless you see a conviction and not even an indictment, but a conviction, then you can't draw a conclusion that these are valid or that the charges really come to rest on him. The fact that people turn state evidence, uh, you know, seems like a very serious matter, but unless they have something that really indicts, that is, leads to an indictment and specifically charge and show that um, the prime minister is responsible for it, uh, then they don't much have have much of a case, and right. the uh, talk still exists about going to an election soon. Right. All right. So again, we'll get back to what happened in Washington in a minute. But now that we're already on it, it seems like a deal's in the works. It seems like uh, there's a coalition deal uh, that's going to solidify this very shaky coalition. And by early next week, it looks like this government, if everybody involved wants it to survive, will survive. Right. Nobody really wants to go to elections at this time in Israel, but the, uh, you know, the the circumstances are such that there could be a break. And today, Lieberman said we're not going to give in to the Haredim. The Haredim are not going to give in on some of the key issues, especially about the draft law. So you don't know. I mean, it has happened before. And but doesn't it seem to you that there's enough support for this new adjustment to the draft law to, in fact, keep the coalition together? I do believe that there's 
right now uh, um, no real incentive because it shows that the Likud would essentially end up where it started. Right. Everybody else would end up. So that, well, what's the gain if you go to elections uh, that you know are, are inconclusive as we are now? Right. I'm not sure this is what you're alluding to, but 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 it, it, it seems obvious that once this whole all, what all these negotiations end early next week, that we're basically going to have the same draft law we had years ago. Right. It looks like we're heading back to that same type of format that's what it looks like but again there are forces at play here trying to press for uh, on, on different aspects of this that um you know could make it difficult first for the parties to stay in or for others to go along with it so the more things change the more they stay the same and again we learn the lesson of the importance and the influence of the religious parties in israel it is really for those who saw a, you know everything going in a certain direction it's amazing how this tide is now turning so it is always interesting in Israel. It's never boring. The, not if if it isn't the international scene or the threats. Right. Certainly, the domestic politics are a full time job. All right. So, um, the APAC conference begins last Sunday, and it seems that there's eighteen thousand people, you know, in the room, so to speak, who are staunch supporters of Israel. Most likely, with a right wing bent. I don't know if you you'd agree with that analysis. But you could tell us if if it's even important whether. Uh, there's a right wing bent in the room, and uh, we know how the Trump administration is now viewing the Middle East peace, uh, the Middle East scene rather, and even stuff that remain items that remain unspoken, you know, seem to be obvious in terms of the uh, uh, attitude toward the quote unquote Palestinian state. We know what the, the Israeli administration, and Prime Minister Netanyahu, thinks in terms of the viability of a real negotiation with the Palestinian state, and yet the leader of APEC goes, you know, speaks publicly and makes sure to mention that the ultimate goal is in fact a two-state solution. Got a lot of uh, flack for it. Was it a mistake for him to do it? That's a judgment he has to make. He got um, uh, more applause from part of the audience for his comments about settlements, about some other issues. Um, There clearly was an attempt to reach out to the broader uh, spectrum of people uh, that the obviously the Trump administration came in for lavish praise from many of the speakers, especially about the Jerusalem issue and also their backing and people like Pence, Vice President Pence and Ambassador Haley got um, huge responses, others as well. Uh, but it was clearly an attempt to, to reach out to this segment. And I think that's it, it, my explanation, at least for why uh, the comments were made to, to uh, reflect that. And you're willing to explain it. You may not be willing to analyze it, but if one would analyze it, uh, often we say, especially when it comes to politics and policy, that it's a good idea to play to your base and strengthen that base, especially when you have people on both sides of the ocean, Israel and Washington, having your back on this issue. And exactly the opposite was done. I understand what you're saying in terms of reaching out to a broader spectrum of people, but many would argue that that's a fruitless uh, attempt. Well, I, I think we shouldn't uh, overemphasize. You had many sessions, many speakers who took very tough lines and, and uh, sustained positions uh, across the board. Uh, you, you're referring to the one speech by the, the executive of, the, of APAC. Uh, I don't know that you could say the same about the others. And the atmosphere was uh, very uh, supportive, I think, the, the it, it uh, underscores the strong pro-Israel bent and, and, and reminding that there were many non-Jews in the audience as well. Could you give us a quick analysis of, I, I don't even know if this is 
fair to put you on the spot like this, but I mean, th- there are journalists, there are columnists who are writing articles about what APAC was like and how it suffered, quote unquote, during the Obama administration and how the Obama administration tried to really undermine it. And obviously things could be much different now because of the Trump administration and its attitude toward Israel. It, it, might we be seeing a much different organization because of who's in Washington now? Well, they always have to reflect the, the administration because it's one of the responsibilities, but even more so in regard to Congress. Um, I don't think that the organization, any organizations, really shift that much. They may. Uh, it is true that the, during the Obama administration there was more pressure and perhaps um, uh, more distance at times, or or you know different directions. But and the job of APEC, which is a lobby, is to to work with the administration to work with Congress. So there is definitely a different atmosphere in Washington, and some people like it, some people are critical of it. But when it comes to Israel, one can't deny that there is a very different atmosphere in the statements about moving the embassy. It's only reflective of that. There are areas where we would like to see more, like Iran versus Iran in in Syria, where we've seen them expanding, continue to expand with eighty to 90,000 militia there, and now the revelations this week, the S-300 in the aircraft system is operational, which I got from Russia, (coughs) sorry, and that they have more advanced, um, uh, these unmanned explosive boats and submarines and and with more advanced torpedoes and naval mines that are much more uh, advanced, and announced that their missile production has increased by three times. And when we see that they have, uh, are trying to establish the bases inside uh, Syria and expand their presence there, the fact that they have an air corridor, which we should shut down, which enables them to supply and to provide cover, uh, all of these are, are critical issues. And one of the foci will be the, the sale, to, uh, the Boeing sale of aircraft to Iran, which uh, there's growing opposition to the sale. Um, because civilian aircraft can be used and have in the past been used for military purposes. All right, now that we've drifted into this and and you've avoided me asking you about the Obama administration undermining AIPAC, uh, let me ask you, when when the media reports this, missile production's up, the Russia to Iran anti-aircraft missile system, now operational, etc., is it as as shocking to the authorities as it is to us? I mean, for us, you know, we're reading it, it's like, wow, you know, this came out of nowhere— I would hope that U.S. intelligence and others, you know, are aware for months, if not longer, that all of this is taking place and that all of a sudden the, the switch was flipped and now that everything is operational. Yeah, most of it should not be shocking and surprising. And, and some of this is coming out of the, the DIA and other government agencies. But for, <laughs> sorry, but for instance, this week, the reports about the chemical weapons, we knew that, that Syria has it because they've used it. At least seven times there have been chemical weapons attacks against the opposition in controlled areas. But now the reports that Iran and maybe even North Korea is supplying the precursors for it and that they, they have uh, Hezbollah has chemical weapons, which they can affix to short and medium range um, missile warheads, and that the Iranians are developing their chemical weapons production and, uh, and facilities in Syria itself um, and trying then to transfer or did transfer stockpiles to Hezbollah in Lebanon. So it, is it a surprise? Should it have been a surprise? No. But when you see the reports and people begin to react, now the question is you have a red line. 
does the administration act on this red line? I mean, I don't think we can count on the Europeans. They chemical weapons is everything, something everybody agrees on. But do you see the likelihood of, of a change here? When they announced not only that they triple missile production, but that they can enrich uranium to 20% in right. two days, uh, what do we do in response to it? What, what increased efforts do we make in, in sanctions and making sure the inspection regimes are, are working uh, hard? So your question is a valid one. What, what do they know and when do they know it? But the, the fact is that most of this stuff, should not have been a big surprise. Uh, and what is and, and and to where do we move the red line then? I mean, if you were advising Washington, for instance, or if anybody you know with your base of knowledge, uh, you know, in in the Middle East, would be uh, recommending to the to the White House what to do. I mean, incre- I know increased sanctions is always on the list, and I know that uh, you know questioning the the validity of the nuclear of the Iran nuclear deal is obviously an important part of it. Are, what else could we? resort to in order to uh, to strengthen that red line well i don't know that we can count very much on cooperation with the russians to to achieve it so it really is up to the united states the europeans you know have have never proven to have much of a spine and and when it comes to taking the actual actions that are necessary um although the french were ready to back the united states when in president obama's days and when we were about to take action and then at the last minute uh, reverted and reversed the the guns and called off the action about the chemical weapons and use of chemical weapons in uh, in, in Syria. So the the sanctions uh, should not be dismissed. We should see sanctions on the oil sector, on the banking. They have an impact. They were they are having an impact. You saw the internal dissension. We should be encouraging that and supporting the people inside. Um, but it has to be them doing it. It shouldn't be, you know, an American mm. initiative because right. then they will say, well, they're, they're all spies and it's, it's uh, you know, uh, they, they will start arresting them as they have uh, all along. So the, there are there are measures that can be taken, but part of the me- message has to be that America has to demonstrate that we'll act with resolve, that we push the Russians, that the, uh, you know, we know that they closed that one base that the Iranians tried to build last week where they would have uh, stored uh, medium and long-range missiles, which would have been in firing distance of uh, of Israel. But at the same time, Iran continues to expand its capacity inside Syria, moving closer and closer to the Israeli border, wanting to be within a night-range attack so that they could, you know, attack some of the communities, villages mm-hmm. across the border. And the... Um, uh, and we have to see what other allies and things, you know, there are going to be opportunities now with the uh, MBS, uh, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia coming and the uh, leader of UAE and of Qatar. They're all coming now in the next uh, weeks to come. But talking to them about what additional efforts can be made to uh, counter what scares them as much as Israel, maybe even more, which is the growing Iranian. And by the way, now they talk about a triangle, something mm-hmm. we've talked here about for a long time. But with Turkey. With Turkey, Iran, and the Islamists as the, posing the danger to the region. And supposedly, um, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, in his visit to Egypt, spoke about improved relations with Israel. And they're talking about this big new mega city, which will be built on the eastern shore of the Red Sea. I mean, you're talking about a $500 billion undertaking. 
Um, this will be near the Jordanian border, but it will expand so large that it will reach to the Egyptian border in Sinai. And there are those who talk even about the benefits that will occur to uh, to Israel. And in the future, we could see the energy pipeline that's being built from, from the Israeli fines to Egypt and to Jordan could be expanded to this area as well. I mean, a lot of ramifications that could be very interesting and very exciting. Um, and this will be very important also for Egypt's economy. All three that you mentioned that are coming to the U.S. will be meeting at the highest level. They'll all meet with the president, UAE, Qatar, and uh, Saudi Arabia? Right. And if it's successful, then they may have a summit meeting in May at Camp David. If it's not, then uh, I guess they won't have the summit meeting. But they, they all have their own agendas. They'll be, um, I know, the Saudi Crown Prince will be here touring in the United States, visiting different cities. Uh, the and um, I, I don't know what the plans of the others are, but this clearly is a, you know, the, the president has called for an end to the conflict between Qatar uh, with Saudi Arabia, UAE, Egypt, et cetera, et cetera, which Iran and Turkey are both exploiting uh, the opportunity. But there are fundamental issues, and until those are resolved, I don't see that we're going to see an end to this. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Friday morning, Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. President of the United States has accepted King Jong Un, Kim Jong-un's invitation to discuss the North Korean nuclear program. Was it uh, a mistake or was it the right thing for the president to accept that invitation? Well, we don't know all the details, but, uh, you know, the idea, the picture of the president with Rocket Man. <laughs> so maybe, maybe his tactic worked. Maybe, the, you know, they're giving it credibility. The question is what they're asking and demand. Originally, they talked about dismantling America's uh, missile program and mm-hmm. nuclear programs, et cetera. I think now they're talking about much less ambitious uh, uh, quid pro quos. Um, but, you know, we'll see with time whether there's, this is a serious effort on their part, uh, a part of North Korea, or is it, uh, in, in, is it because the sanctions have really been impactful and that uh, they see the difficulties that they face within the country? You know, it's a poor country. It has minimal resources, dependent upon China for 80% of its energy and imports. So there are a lot of things that could be motivating uh, this move. Are the uh, sanctions uh, of this administration against North Korea much different than the Obama administration? Were there back then? Of course. We've had sanctions on North Korea for a long time. So are they much, much worse than they were? Are they much more difficult? I'm trying to understand. I really don't know. The details of the sanctions and will follow the North Korea situation. I have too much to follow in I'm, the I'm uh, trying to, other regions. I'm trying to. <laughs> that are so complicated, and, and uh, but there is. Well, I'm trying to know the linkages that it's not as if North Korea, and the reason why we follow North Korea at all is because North Korea and Iran have a synergistic relationship in terms of the missiles that Iran uses are based on North Korea's model, that they uh, exchange information on the nuclear program if they don't coordinate. And if you remember the the, the nuclear um, reactor that the, the Israelis took out, the facility they took out in Syria, was a North Korea project. Right. And North Korea involved also perhaps in this chemical weapons, as I mentioned uh, before. The reason I ask that is because I'm trying to understand is north korea now coming to the table 
exclusively because of the tough talk of President Trump, or are things you know uh, are, are, are things practically much different for them than they were a couple of years ago in the past administration? Well, I think they take the president very seriously, and that uh, his focus on them, uh, the rhetoric, uh, rhetoric does matter, but uh, on the ground uh, impact is much greater. And if the sanctions are biting and they see that they're serious and that he's helping. And now they want to try to avoid this next round of joint military exercises, which go on every year between the United States and and South Korea. Uh, look, if it, if it works, it'll be a great coup for the president. Right. Why does Hezbollah fear that Israel's attacking them in Lebanon soon? Because Israel may well have to. Given the buildup and the fact that they are placing rockets in, in in villages, that they are expanding it, and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and the uh, other groups are, are doing it as well, that there is um, uh, growing um, evidence that they are trying to build up their placement. I don't believe that Hezbollah wants to attack now. I don't believe that they yet want a war and want a war with Israel. But the fact that you have 100,000 missiles, that you have um, a growing threat because of Iran and Iran's buildup in Syria and along the Israeli border, Jordanian border as well, uh, Israel can't wait until after an attack. Uh, so Israel has warned them repeatedly, consistently. They've taken steps along the border to, to um, strengthen it and to... to able to resist an attempt to cross for cross-border raids but the, the greater danger is that you could have a rogue event you could have uh, firing missiles and when you have such a huge capacity and it's in people's homes and it's in underground facilities in, in southern lebanon and the growing presence in syria itself is creating a circumstance and i think israel is sounding the warning to to make sure they understand that uh, what the consequences uh will likely to be, but it's, you know, it's no longer a hypothetical danger and the growth of the military presence in, in these countries, uh, in, in Syria and in Lebanon and in Iraq. And we have an election coming up in Iraq. And if a more pro-Iranian regime is elected, it will also add to, um, uh, to the danger. You know, you saw in Bahrain this week that they arrested uh, over a hundred people, which who were part of an armed network, by Iran's revolutionary guard who want to overthrow the government of Bahrain, the, the growth of, of Iranian efforts in uh, other countries as well. These are, uh, you know, the, 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 we know the aggressive intent and the ultimate design that Iran has. Their question is, when is it practical for them to be able to move? And it may not be because they want to know war. They would like a raid across the border, kidnap people, soldiers, do something against one of the communities uh, close to the border. And Israel, of course, is taking all the steps necessary to prevent that. So unlike Syria, where we've actually seen action, there's been no action from Hezbollah in the north, but the, 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 the longer they continue to build up their missile supply and place them in key areas, the more likely Israel is to attack. If there was some type of real action like we've seen from Syria, then Israel would have no choice but to retaliate immediately. Well, you also have the new guidance systems, which make the missiles more accurate. You know, it used to be that they could just shoot and they would land in the fields and stuff. Now they have great, they will have greater accuracy and supposedly trying to fix chemical weapon warheads. And Israel can't wait till they launch. If Israel feels that this something is imminent, then they're going to have to act, which is what Hezbollah 
is now responding to the fact that uh, you have this huge buildup, and uh, and even if it's not Hezbollah, it could be one of the other groups, but Israel holds them accountable, holds the government of Syria accountable for what happens from uh, Syria, and of course holds Iran accountable, has made very clear their their intentions in this regard. You know, this is a it's a very volatile situation, and you you when you have such large numbers of of weapons, and you have you know crazy people yeah. uh, driven by radical ideologies, it's serious. Look, look what we're seeing now in in the PA with all of the pressures on them, with all of the Taylor Force, everything else. We find out they they've increased the pay to terrorists this year to four hundred three million dollars as a $56 million more than the year before. And this means money to those who kill, those who, you know, attack to their survivors or to the prisoners themselves and, the, and giving them raises in terms of the amounts of money uh, they're getting at the same time when the whole PA infrastructure is in free fall virtually, where you have the, you know, to talk of succession to a boss who's 83 may have stomach cancer, though I'm not sure that it's true. Uh, and you see the fighting, the succession, where you have the Tanzin, you know, the, the quote, military arm of the Fatah. In, in each area, you have Jibril Rajub mobilizing them in Hebron. You have uh, Mahmoud al-Alul, who's the deputy and supposed successor. Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, mobilizing in Nablus. You have in Janine, them going off on their own. You have Majid Faraj, who's the uh, senior security official, uh, who's accused of being a collaborator because he's, he, he coordinates security with Israel but, and has a lot of international support, but he's doing it. And then you see guys like Al-Alul and Rajub who are fighting each other, but are uniting against Kamdala, the prime minister, and against Dahlan. And you you see the the uh, then the introduction <laughs> that maybe Abbas really prefers Majid Faraj, who's the head of the um, General Intelligence Services in in uh, the West Bank. Oh, area. so that that's the real problem is that he didn't make his his, his preference of first successor known. That's well, he, he's making many preferences known, and the question is whether he will be able to be the dictator. And, you know, the, there's going to be a meeting coming up of the uh, Palestinian legislative body, Palestinian uh, Council and, and uh, the National Council on April 30th in Ramallah. This is the first time in, in of course, many years and the uh, the these uh, there are eighteen members of the what is their top decision making body their their executive committee and these are all older people um, and uh, despite his health issues he's really not chosen a successor so this issue is going to be uh, a dominant one and you, if they elect a new executive committee it could be an indication of what direction this is uh, uh, going to take. Yeah, and the funny. number two now is Saiba Arakat, who underwent a lung transplant, and so people don't know how long he'll stay on the job. Yeah. And as I said, Rajub and Alul seem to be uh, uh, front runners in a lot of this, but yeah, I there are other mo- candidates as well. I thought most people who are writing about it uh, assume that Alul is the natural successor. And by the way, are there names for these different factions yet, or are they all just call each other the PA? <laughs> they all part of the PA, right? But maybe they will break off and create independent countries. I would think not countries, but at least factions, so we can keep track of them. Well, they have on. factions, but it's really it's based upon the individual and yeah, the right. you know the leader. Yeah, they're that, they're, uh, no, they're known by their leader's name at this point, I guess. That they're that they're backing, but also you know the the U.S. policy and the decisions on Jerusalem, other things are going to be uh, major issues, and they they of course accuse the Trump administration of siding with Israel, and the they don't know yet what to expect from the peace plan process suggest-
suggestions would ever well, ultimately emerge from uh, from the current discussions. And they're not going to be happy if the president shows up in two months for the move of the embassy. And they won't be happy for that. And they're not happy when they hear the declarations. Uh, Vice President Pence gave a powerful speech. Um, you know, they, they, and so did, uh, of course, David Friedman, others from the administration, and Nikki Haley, all uh, a very positive tone, certainly reinforcing of the relationship. And uh, they see the changes in the region where the Arab countries, from the Gulf, from Saudi Arabia, the UAE, to Egypt, to others, the changing attitude towards Israel, the willingness to talk more openly about the potential connections, and if the reports are true, the fact that Air India will be able to do a direct flight over Saudi Arabia, which saves about two and a half hours wow. on the flight from um, from India to, to Israel, which is a, a huge thing, and El Al, of course, now wants it as well. Right. But this is, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of things that are happening. We still see, unfortunately, some of the broadcasts, the hostile broadcasts, we want to see changes in um, in the media, and but you can't deny the moves towards at least open declarations of moves towards tolerance, towards um, trying to contain the Islamists, to change the atmosphere within the countries, changing the dress codes, uh, the requirements. You saw in Iran this young woman who took off the hijab and was sentenced to two years in prison, whereas in Saudi Arabia, UAE, others, not only women driving, but also saying that they don't have to wear uh, some of the clothing and, and uh, et cetera. So, there, there are a lot of changes that are taking place in the region, and, and we have to know um, what the implications of each one. It's a, like a puzzle. By the way, on, pull on the, out any one piece and then see the whole picture. By the way, on the PA thing, tell them to direct their anger to Guatemala. They've expressed their interest in getting their embassy moved ASAP. Well, the ambassador, the uh, president, Morales, whom I had the opportunity to meet, I've been to visit him in Guatemala to encourage him to do this. And by the way, the Czech Republic uh, president yesterday said that he wants to move their embassy as well. Honduras is considering people who do business in these countries should send messages, should reinforce it, should show, encourage them because they, they are getting, obviously, a lot of pressure and threats of boycotts by the Arab League and the Arab countries. Um, that, that we have to, to help and encourage it so that when the United States makes the move, others will follow. Yeah, 100%. That's a, and there are people, and many think, as you say that, you know, who's doing business there? You'd be surprised how many people in our community are doing business in those places. It would be a good idea to let people, especially those in influential positions, know how important it is to us. What do you think of the announcement by Prince William that he's heading to Israel? Well, it is important. It's the first visit, I think, in 70 years uh, by Royal, and there's been an absolute ban. And as you know, there was uh, when Prince Charles came for President Paris's funeral, mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to talk to him because nobody else was. And he, was, he sat down in the front row, and I was there. Uh, and I started speaking to him and told him that I had just seen his grandmother's grave, uh, Prince Alice, who, uh, who asked to be buried on the Mount of Olives in the Christian cemetery there. She was uh, designated one of the righteous amongst the Gentiles because she saved the Jewish family in her apartment during World War II. She was living in Greece. And um, uh, so some people say she was a Christian Zionist. Others have other descriptions, but the royals weren't visiting. And he turned to me and he said, well, can I see it from here? And I told him, no, but you can visit it from here. It's very close. You can go and see it. And it's really a beautiful setting. And he turned to his aide finally and said, I want you to set it up. And they said, well, well, well. He said, no, I want to go and see it. And he went. (laughs) (laughs) So, no, of course, the next day, you know, the newspapers, you know, had headlines about it. 
but now this is an official visit. It'll go. They'll also go to the PA and the, to Jordan. Uh, but it's uh, you know it is significant when uh, finally there will be a visit. It's long overdue. No question about that. By the way, back on the PA, they're officially now a member of Interpol. That's absolutely right, and there's a lot of concern being raised about it because now this will give them access to files. Yeah, I mean, those who are, are they the most rogue group that's now a member of Interpol? <laughs> well, a lot of people think all of Interpol is pretty rogue. <laughs> that's true. And, you know, and they do have some history going back to World War II and et cetera, which raised many questions. Uh, but they, they, they are now and just were admitted as a full participant, which gives them access to the files and to information, which... A lot of people are very wary about Yeah, I can only imagine. I can only imagine. All right, we're at the tail end here. But I, and I, I don't know if there's a fast answer to this question, but I, I wanted to make sure to ask you this week. I, I mean, I just don't I never can understand this reconciliation of the Russians, of being defenders of Assad, essentially helping him when necessary. And nonetheless, we keep seeing headlines about how, how they, meaning the Russians, are helping the rebels. How does, how, how, how does one, how does it, how does this work? Russia does whatever serves its purposes. I don't know that they're really helping the rebels so much. They, I think that they are looking to protect their investments, which especially is the naval base and the Air Force base at Tartus and, and uh, Latakia, that they want to, uh, they, they were backing Assad and came out winners in that regard and showed that they, as I said, stand by their friends and send that message very clearly. They, uh, they cooperate with the Iranians. They cooperate with whoever serves uh, the purpose. Remember, their investment there is minimal. Their presence there is minimal, and yet he's been able to maximize the impact and the leverage of, uh, of that minimal investment. And now looking to expand further with a base perhaps in the Sudan, a base in, in other areas, um, looking at Libya. Um, if, the, if Assad's future and his strength is in Russia's interest, isn't it strange that Russia... I understand not to the degree that I think so, as you just explained, but they go out of their way to help those who are fighting Assad? I don't think they go out of their way to do it. I think that they just do whatever they think fits their strategic um, calculation for the moment. And we know that they switch sides. But I, I don't think that they're really helping very much right. on any front. What we're, we're, we are seeing is uh, a shifting of um, some of the activities, like the Kurds now fighting Turkey much more and and less against ISIS, and that sort of held back some of the U.S. initiative in that regard. Saying, but the the and Turkey being much more aggressive in in its battle of the, the bombings, et cetera, against it, and some of the rebels defecting to the to the Kurds um, to, to, to the fight against the Turkish forces. So it, it, you know you have people shifting sides all the time, and in whatever is in their immediate interest, and often recruits go wherever the money is, whoever's paying most that month and recruits them, they go to it. So Russia is really just being pragmatic, and they, they he follows whatever is in his immediate interest, and that enables them to expand their uh, uh, their footprint. Finally, would you like to see women's march leaders distance themselves from Louis Farrakhan? It's not what I would like. It, I think it's essential, and I think it's it's the means to all the purposes and the high and, uh, and lofty goals of any uh, any of these efforts. When somebody like that can, and members of Congress who have met with him should be disassociating with him. Some have already; uh, others should. 
I think that it's it's disgraceful that it would not be tolerated by a racist and bigot of uh, of any color that uh, to talk to him about as a great man, despite whatever he, his beliefs and what he says. This is um, it, it's really unacceptable. And there has to be a clear. And when they talk about double standards, they don't want it applied to in, in terms of racism, bigotry, and other areas. It can't be tolerated in regard to this. And the fact, I hope that Democratic leaders will take the initiative to speak out. Some have, um, and the vast majority obviously do not uh, associate with them. But the, the hatred and the, the fact that that. Um, People associated with it, and and you see the true colors, uh, maybe of Linda Sassour and others, come out when they, if they're not willing to take the stand, and if they, you know, continue to defend their associations. I thank you. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak again next week. Have a great Shabbos. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations.